So my wife can attest that I've been emotional about a handful of times in my life, and for some reason this morning's one of them. The, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, and uh, we're going to walk through the story of, uh, uh, about Moses this morning, and then we're going to um, use that as an opportunity to address possibly the deepest waters in all of Scripture. And um, that's where some of you are. So, as you're opening to Exodus chapter 4, forgive me please if I sniffle every now and again. Um, it, it's really abnormal, but, but um, you'll see when we get there, we're going to be talking about God's sovereignty as, full, uh, as fully as, as we can do in this period of time. And, and uh, really that's, you know, you may be wondering why we chose the book of Exodus. We talked about it about six weeks ago when we started this book and uh, talked about why we were doing Exodus. And then um, a, a friend of mine wanted to raise his hand and ask if we were really doing all of Exodus. Because <laughs> there's a lot of it. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're going to do all of it. Um, there will be times when we slow down and uh, deal with things more in depth. And there will be times when we deal with large chunks together. And uh, I think that's appropriate with a text like Exodus. And so, um, but when in that first message, when we first introduced the book, we, uh, we referred to a quote by A.W. Tozer, who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And uh, that is powerful. The more you think about that, the more it means. And so the book of Exodus informs in amazing ways what we think about God, what comes into our minds when we think about God. And so we, uh, we said that Exodus will answer questions like, where is God when his people are suffering? And why does God show mercy on us? And uh, what's God like in his true nature? And how can we worship him in spirit and in truth? And so, Lord willing, in our talk today, we will be able to find answers for all of those questions. And so if you'll write them down, if you'll find a place, I didn't leave you a convenient place in your notes there. Uh, this is one of those times when I could have used more paper for the notes, but I didn't want to give you that long, you know, legal paper. It doesn't fold up very well to fit into the thing. But um, if you'll write down these questions, where is God when his people are suffering? That'll be the first one. And then after our time today, as you're eating lunch or as you're uh, doing whatever you're doing this afternoon or this evening, go back and readdress that question in light of our passage today, passages in, in light of our sermon today. That's the first question. Where is God when his people are suffering? And I think that's why I'm emotional, because we have people suffering. Question number two, why does God show mercy to us? Why does he? And thirdly, what's God like in his true nature? And so we're hoping to... Uh, find answers to those questions from our message today. And so in order to do that, let's uh, seek the Lord's help yet again. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to your word because it tells us truth. It's from you and to us, and it's to tell us true things about us and you and how to know you. And in our, our passages we're going to look at today, particularly, Lord, we're going to deal with a very deep subject, the, the issue of your sovereignty what it means and what it doesn't mean. And, uh, and so that is very close to um, the prime question about who you are. And so we approach this subject with humility. And we approach it submitted to you. I pray that you would help us to think well about this and help us to look deeply into your word to find out what is true, what we can know, and if there are things that we can't know about this topic. We're dealing with your name. We're dealing with your identity, and so we want to be careful. And so I pray by your spirit that you would help us. I pray particularly that you would help me as I seek to guide us through these passages, talk about this subject, help me to speak truth in love. Be honored in this time, we pray. Build up your people in this time, we pray. Help us to know you better through this time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're in Exodus chapter 4. And um, 
we're going to work through, as you see there in your notes, we're going to be doing 18 through uh, 31, which is the end of our chapter today, and that's going to be the brief part. <laughs> All right, we're going, to, we're going to go through those verses relatively quickly. You can see, if you look at your outline, that's point one. That's point one. And so uh, then we're going to jump off because, because our passage brings to mind a question that must be answered. And so um, there, if you look at uh, chapter 4 and verse 18, uh, remember we're talking about Moses and, and he's been in the desert and he's been raising a family and he's been doing all these things. Now God has come and spoken to him and, and called him to do this mission and he, uh, he's deciding, yeah, you know, can I do it, can I not do it? And he has this discussion with, uh, with God that we talked about last week. And so we get to verse 18. Moses went back to Jeth- Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And so first of all, you see that Moses requests leave. He requests leave and Jethro didn't really have to give it. It's kind of interesting how brief that kind of thing is. If you think about the situation there, Moses may have been the only other adult male in that little, you know, family unit. And here Jethro is letting half of his labor force go, or he's letting, you know, half of his defense force go. And he, but he just says, go in peace. And, and so he sends him off. And it's interesting that Moses kind of excuses himself. He, he doesn't give the whole reason, doesn't explain to Jethro exactly what's going on. He kind of gives an aside, kind of an excuse. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Well, that's not really the point, but in some cultures, that's kind of how you, rather than starting the giant conversation, you just say this thing, which lets you get out. And that's the way it is in Russia. And, and it kind of seems like what's going on here. And Jethro doesn't really question it. He just kind of says, go in peace. It's interesting. God tells him the uh, people who are seeking your life are dead. So go back. And I was thinking about that, that what does God care if they're dead or not? You know? Is, is, uh, is the person seeking Moses' life too powerful for God or whatever? I don't think God is looking for the, uh, the most, um, you know, safe opportunity for Moses to go back to Egypt. And so he says, okay, now they're all dead. You can kind of sneak in quietly. They'll never notice you. I don't think that's the point. I've, if you think about what God is going to accomplish, and we'll get into that more later on in our message today, but what God is going to accomplish in Egypt is that he is going to pick a fight, essentially, with Pharaoh, the result of which is going to be his people seeing who God really is and his people being, being brought out of the land so that they can then go into their own land. And so, uh, that's, that's what the plan is. And it seems like he's, God is telling Moses, the plan has just started. Remember those ones that sought your life? Well, they're dead. So step one is done. So go back and we'll begin step two, that kind of idea. So I don't think God was looking for a safe opportunity for Moses to return. That doesn't sound like God to me. But you see uh, Moses here, he packs up his family, and, and uh, there's some question, because later on in, in chapter 18 of Exodus, we see that actually his family has been with Jethro this whole time, and so they're kind of reunited after this whole Exodus, uh, or this whole thing happens in Egypt with all the plagues and all that. So, uh, but he, he puts his family on his donkey, um, and, and uh, I think sends him back to, to live with Jethro. But, um, but for, for sure, what he does is he takes the staff of God with him. And uh, the this, this staff that, that was talked about so much last week, the one that's going to turn into a snake that he's going to use to perform miracles and whatnot, he takes that with him. And God had told him to use that thing to perform miracles, to perform signs before Pharaoh. And, um, and so he takes it with him. So he's being obedient. He acts in faith, right? And maybe it encouraged Moses to know that uh, those who sought his life were dead. Maybe, maybe God was just kind of saying, it's okay, they're, they're dead. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. Maybe God wasn't the one worrying, but Moses was regardless. He up and leaves and goes into this situation. So he's responding in faith. And so that's, uh, that's our first uh, passage there. The second, we see that to Moses receives instructions. Verses 21 through 23, And the Lord said to Moses, we're back in Exodus 4, When you go back to Egypt, see that uh, you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
And so God receives, uh, he gives instructions to Moses about, um, about what all is going to happen there. Uh, he reminds Moses, make sure you do all these miracles, perform the signs that I've given you to do, uh, show them to Pharaoh. Um, and God wants Pharaoh to see the power and the authority and the might of God. He wants, he wants Pharaoh to see who he is really dealing with in this issue. He wants his power to be unmistakable so that anyone would let his people go rather than face that kind of power. As we know from reading the story, though, Pharaoh doesn't heed God's warning through Moses. Instead, our passage says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Verse 21. We're going to go into that in great depth uh, later on in a a couple of points uh, about hardening Pharaoh's heart. But uh, notice the result. Pharaoh will see the unmistakable power of God on display and he will disregard it. It's insignificant doesn't really matter to Pharaoh. The miracles Moses is to perform are to be visible. They're to be motivating warnings to Pharaoh that anyone would take heed of. And God gives another motivating and clear warning in 22 and 23. Did you catch that? Say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So if you think ahead in our story, you know the story of the ten plagues. And many of you have been, by the way, been reading Exodus, kind of in personal devotions. And I encourage that because it's going to help you understand everything that we're going through. You think ahead to the tenth plague and think about what happened there. And you can see uh, that's the plague of the death of the firstborn, by the way. You can see how Pharaoh will lose his own son because he refused to let God's son go. So you can see the seriousness and you can see the appropriateness of God's threat here. He says, you're choking out the life of my son. Let him go. If you don't, I'm going to choke out the life of your son. That's the threat. And so Moses receives instructions, 21 through 23. We move on and we see a required circumcision. Now, this is kind of an enigmatic sort of passage here, 24 through 26. Scholars discuss about it, and we're not going to go into great detail about it, but uh, it's definitely an interesting uh, and outstanding event. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So somewhere along the journey, a very unusual event happens. God meets Moses, and he seeks to put him to death. It stands out. He's he's spent all this time, he spent chapters talking Moses into being willing to go. (laughs) Right. And Moses has been saying, no, I can't, you know, because of this reason and that, that I want to. Can't you find somebody else? And I can't talk very well and I don't want to do it and all this kind of stuff. So finally, he agrees to go and God meets him on the way and seeks to put him to death. I don't know what's going on there. Right. But it's interesting that he sought to put him to death. He didn't put him to death. God has the almighty God who created everything with a word. Has the ability to snuff out his life right now, if that's the goal. If he wanted to kill Moses, he could. But he seeks to put him to death. He, he goes about the process of putting him to death. I don't know what that looked like. Nobody knows what that looked like. But Zipporah was there. We can praise God for our wives. Because she stepped in, somehow determined what the issue was. And so she takes her son, their son, and she circumcises him. And so it's not real clear from this text whether, you know, maybe, maybe the issue was, because uh, she says later, you know, it was, it was uh, there then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Maybe the fact, you know, that, that their son Gershom wasn't circumcised is why God was after him, which raises an interesting point that God cares that much about circumcision. Here, just, just verses earlier, we had Moses arguing with God, unwilling to go. I can't do it. Pick somebody else. You know, or else send me a helper or whatever. Like he's arguing with God. God doesn't kill him. But then he goes about the task uncircumcised and God steps in and seeks to kill him. So uh, it's not real clear what's going on, but God takes circumcision very seriously, which is going to become a major, major issue later on, obviously, in the history of the Jews. That circumcision is a central point. Think even ahead to the New Testament. Think about how much they valued circumcision. It seems like they learned their lesson from this passage. It's not real clear whether it's Gershom who was uncircumcised or maybe it was Moses who was uncircumcised. We don't really know. I mean, he grew up in an Egyptian household and we don't really have any idea. But it's odd that Zipporah steps in and she circumcises the son and then, and then she touches Moses with it. 
touches his his legs, which is kind of a euphemism for his, you know, his his uh, lower parts. Touches him and, and seems to be a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. If you think ahead to the tenth plague and the Passover, how are people going to survive the Passover? There's going to be blood applied, smeared on the door. And because of that, God will pass over and not kill them. So it seems like God is kind of doing a foreshadowing thing here that maybe Gershom's circumcision was applied to Moses or I, I don't know. It's not exactly clear, but the application, the circumcision is important and the application of blood spares a life. Whatever the true things are behind all that, whatever, whatever we're to understand from all that, the result is Zipporah stepped in, somehow determined what the problem was and solved it right away while God was still acting to kill Moses. So we can praise the Lord that God only sought to put Moses to death. He didn't just take his life, which if that's what he wanted to do, he could have done. She saves the day. And so uh, there's a, a required circumcision. I don't have much more intelligent to say about that. It's very difficult to understand. And uh, that's, that's not, our, not our point here. So we're going to move on. We're going to talk about point D here. Moses received by the people. Look at verses 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So Moses is reunited with his brother after some years or decades. He's reunited with his brother in the wilderness. And uh, he tells him of God's plan for the children of Israel. And together they travel to Egypt and they speak all the things they're supposed to speak. And they, they do the signs that they're supposed to do. And uh, that's the plan. They, they show the elders the signs and tell them what God has in, in, in mind here. And verse 31 says, The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So the result of all this, when they hear good news that God is coming to deliver us, they respond in a way that you would expect them to. They bow their heads and they worship. They're worshiping that God has heard. God who has seemed so far away for 400 years. While they've been suffering, while their hardship has been getting worse, while their lives have been getting more and more miserable, they hear that God is going to come and deliver them. He has paid attention. He has heard what, uh, what's going on with them, and he's going to come and he's going to deliver them. So for our story going ahead in the book of Exodus, all the pieces are in place. Everything is where it should be. The right Pharaoh is on the throne and the other one's dead. The right Pharaoh is on the throne. Moses has the staff of God. He has his mouthpiece, his brother Aaron, who's with him in Egypt, along with the knowledge and support of the elders of the people. So everything is in place for the story to go ahead. The great showdown between the most powerful man on earth and the Lord God of the Hebrews is about to play out. It's going to be on a huge scale and in a way that would be remembered for all time. So that's our passage for the day. Shortest sermon I ever preached. <laughs> Except that now we're getting to the real material. Point number two is what God's Word says about sovereignty. We sang about it in powerful ways this morning. God really is sovereign. We use that word sovereignty a lot in churches. In politics, you know, we use it to, to refer to different things, but it's a similar kind of concept. But what does the Bible really teach us about it? Well, the Bible teaches us a lot about sovereignty, and we could spend weeks on it, but we won't. We'll spend the next few minutes on it. We know it means that God is in control, but what more can we learn by looking into the Bible? What more than just that statement, God is in control? We're going to look, first of all, if you'll turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to look at sovereignty and its extent. Sovereignty and its extent. So Matthew chapter 10, that's on page 815, by the way, if you're using your pew Bible, that'll get you there quickly. And I'll start reading, and here it's, uh, it's Jesus speaking, talking to his disciples, and starting there in verse 28, it says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
I'll pause for a second. Don't fear those who can kill the body only, but they can't do anything to the soul. Rather, fear him who, who can destroy both, who can destroy the body and can send the soul to hell. He tells the disciples not to be afraid of people who may have the power to kill the body, but have no power over the soul. God, however, has power both over the body and over the soul to send it into hell. He's the one that we should fear. Jesus is offering comfort when people mean to harm you. He's saying you don't need to be afraid of that person who might kill you. Because there is a God who has control over life and control over your soul. But he continues, verse 29, are not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. By the way, any hunters here? Anybody ever shot at birds before? Do you realize when you miss, it was God's will. Right? God determines when that duck dies and when it doesn't doesn't matter how good a shot you are. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. His point is that even the most insignificant creatures, sparrows, which could be bought two for a penny, have God's close attention. They aren't important. There are millions and millions of them. And yet not even one of them dies apart from the plan and intention of God. A sparrow. Applying that to us, we know our days are numbered, right? We talked about that. We know that our days are numbered and that God is in control of when we die. But Jesus gets much more specific than that. He continues in verse 30. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do you realize in a, in a, a young adult, there are about 100,000 hairs on your head-ish, give or take. That's some, you know, we're being generous if we say that. But think about 100,000 times the billions of people on this earth. That's a lot of hair, right? Jesus is saying that God's sovereignty focuses right down to the loss of a single hair on your head. He doesn't just mean God is smart enough to be able to look at you and count your hair. They're all numbered, meaning just as the life of the sparrow is in God's hand, the life of that hair is in God's hand. He takes care even of the details, even at the level of what we would call less than trivial. That's not beneath the attention of God's sovereignty, the focus of God's sovereignty. Even the minutest detail of life is divinely directed and orchestrated by God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. He continues in verse 31, fear not, therefore. When you, when you see therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay, keep that in mind, right? Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The fact of God's absolute control over details gives us what we need to obey Jesus' commandment to fear not. If God were not in control, we can't really obey that commandment. But he is in control, so you don't have to be afraid. That's his point. The extent of God's sovereignty is that it is all-encompassing. But what about sovereignty and people? What about sovereignty and people? It's easy to talk. Hair doesn't have a will, right? A sparrow, you know, not really significant. But what about sovereignty and people? Now, I have a list in your outline there of, a, of numerous verses. The reason I did that was not just to populate your paper, but it was so that you can quickly look to them and think about them rather than taking your time writing them down because we're going to cover a lot, okay? So, um, take, take notes in a way that you can, you know, which one of these is most significant to you or whatever, but that's why I've got them out listed out for you that way so that you can go back and look at this later. Trust me, this will be something you will think about later on. Okay. So a verse that springs to mind immediately on this topic. And one, by the way, that I, that I clung to with desperation all through the election cycle <laughs> is this issue right here from Proverbs 21, one. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king is the highest in the land. We're Americans. We don't have a king. Praise the Lord, right? But even, even those countries that do have a king, we don't deal with monarchy like they dealt with monarchy back in that time. In that time, there was no legislature who might uh, pass laws that the king didn't like. 
There was no judicial system that might, uh, you know, censure the, the king for something the king said or whatever. What the king said went, period. That's it. Right? And so thinking of that kind of king that we don't comprehend now because we don't have those kind of kings now, particularly in our country, but even around the world, we don't really have those kind of kings. Into that, the writer of Proverbs says the king's heart is a street. That guy's heart. The one who says, and it happens, so let it be written, so let it be done. That guy's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Regardless of the power of that king, Proverbs says that even the heart of so powerful a person as the king of the land is like a trickle of water in the Lord's hand. He does whatever he wants with it. And it's not, his point isn't just that the heart of the high and mighty is in God's hand. He's saying the heart of the high and mighty is in God's hand. So what about a commoner like me? Of course, my heart is like a stream of water in in the Lord's hand. And he turns my heart wherever he will. That's the point of Proverbs 21.1. And sometimes that truth can work out in very, very encouraging ways. Exodus 12 and verse 36, which is later in our story in Exodus, obviously. God works in the hearts of the Egyptians so that when the Israelites who are about to escape, right, they're about to leave and they've caused all these plagues to happen on, on, uh, well, they didn't cause it, of course, but they're involved in the cause of all these plagues happening to the people of Egypt. And what happens? 1236, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they gave them whatever they asked. They came and they asked for clothes and they asked for jewelry. And the people were like, okay, that's a great idea. Take my clothes and take my jewelry. God worked in their heart to give the people favor with the Egyptians. He showed himself sovereign over their hearts. And then again, in Exodus 34 and uh, verses 23, 23 through 24, the Israelites, uh, so this is much later on in our story in, in the book of Exodus. They're, they're, you know, getting things prepared, thinking about when they're going to enter into the land. And they're receiving instructions about what they were going to do when they finally got there, right? And we read this in 23 and 24. He says, three times in the year, you shall, uh, shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So three times a year, they were supposed to drop what they were doing and go up to Jerusalem to worship. Drop what they were doing. They might, in the, you know, who knows what they were doing? Maybe they were soldiers. Maybe they were farmers. Maybe they lived on the border and they had bad guys living next to them who, you know, they were to drop what they were doing. And they didn't leave, you know, their oldest strapping son at home. It said, all your males. They left what they were doing and went up to worship. And this is what God says. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. You left your farm unguarded. And no one would covet your farm. You were a soldier. You were instructed to go up and worship. You left your post. And God protected your land. He made it so that no one would invade. He worked in the hearts of evil men to keep them from even thinking of coming and stealing your land while you're up worshiping three times a year for a week or two at a time. That's the way God worked in their heart. Sometimes God's sovereignty over the hearts of people can work in ways that are very, very encouraging. But often it doesn't. What about when people intend evil against you? They really do intend evil against you. The verse that's stuck in my mind for years on this topic is Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Right? And, and that's the conclusion of the Joseph story and all that's going on there, right? One of the clearest examples of uh, God's sovereignty is there in, uh, in the evil intentions of Joseph, in the Joseph story, right? So if you remember the Joseph story, I'll tell it real quickly. Joseph was, uh, you know, was a, um, a, a young, you know, boy. He was 17 when this all started. And he had all these older brothers and they hated him. They thought he was arrogant. He was having these dreams about how God was going to bless him and, and he, not being very smart, would go and tell them about the dreams that God had given him that they were going to bow down to him and whatnot. And so, um, and so his brothers didn't like him. So they throw him in a pit. They're debating whether to kill him. They decide not to kill him. So they sell him to, to slavers instead who take him down into Egypt. He goes down into Egypt and, uh, you know, and the whole story happens there. And, and not only he's sold into slaves, slavery, so he's working and he does well, but his master's wife falsely accuses him of unwanted sexual advances. So he gets arrested, thrown into prison. Well, he does well while he's in prison. 
And while he's in prison, he helps a guy who then, who then gets to get out of prison and gets completely forgotten. You know, he, he says to the guy, remember me before Pharaoh so that, you know, they know I'm a good guy in the way I helped you. And so that guy gets out of prison and completely forgets about Joseph. So now he's been forgotten in prison, right? And as the story continues later on, he ends up actually becoming the prime, Joseph himself ends up becoming the prime minister. And, uh, but all of that stuff happened. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into prison or sold into slavery. He was put in prison. All that kind of stuff happened. And uh, finally, after years in that context, he's able to talk to his brothers. So in Genesis 50, we've gone from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. And uh, he says to his brothers, the ones who initiated that evil against him, the ones who threw him in the pit, the ones who took him and sold him into slavery, he says to them, as for you, uh, Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His brothers meant evil. That's very clear from the text. That's very clear from his memory, from their memory. They feel guilty for what they did. They meant evil and God meant good. Who intended, who was it who intended him to be sold into slavery and to start down that whole painful path? Who was it? Certainly the hateful brothers meant it. But God was behind it all from the beginning. And he intended, he meant that same action to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Who meant it? I love to ask that question. Look at Genesis 50, 20 and say, who meant it? Did God mean it or did the brothers mean it? Yep. The brothers meant it in an evil way. And God meant it and he brought about great good. Who intended it? They both did. Joseph may be the clearest example, and I think it's just about the clearest example, but there's one in our passage today, in our passage today. So turn back to Exodus chapter 4 if you've turned away from that. Exodus chapter 4. And look at verse 21. So we're back in, uh, in, in page 47. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. And here's the, here's the key point. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God wanted a visible showdown with Pharaoh to demonstrate to Pharaoh and to all the whole world and particularly to the people of Israel that he, the Lord God of Israel, was sovereign, almighty God over all the universe. And in order to bring about the magnitude of the showdown that he wanted, he sovereignly hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not choose to give in to the demands of the Lord until the very end. And even then, if you remember, he changed his mind. God worked to harden Pharaoh's heart to bring about this whole thing. Who meant it? Was Pharaoh a a pawn? No. Pharaoh meant evil against the people. That's clear. Did God mean it? Oh, yeah. And God's going to bring about the deliverance of his people. God is sovereign over the hearts of people. To persuade them to do good. Or even to harden them like Pharaoh to do evil. Or like Joseph's brothers. So what about sovereignty and and calamity or disease or suffering? Sovereignty and suffering. I think this is why I was emotional singing this morning. Because this is many of us. Many of you in far greater ways than, than me. Sovereignty and suffering. So early in our chapter here in in Exodus, Moses had been complaining to God. Remember that he was slow of speech and he should be excused of the job of going and being the spokesman to Pharaoh because he he didn't speak very well. His tongue didn't work right and whatnot. Do you remember God's answer in verse 11? Look back at verse 11. Then the Lord said, Who has made, made man's mouth? Rhetorical question. Who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? God doesn't just say, hey, I made man's mouth, and I know how it operates, and I can override your slowness of speech to make it work. That's not what God said. What he says is, I made the mouth, and when the mouth doesn't work, I did it. I made ears, and when ears don't hear, it's because I made them not to hear. I made eyes, and when eyes don't see, I made them not see. That gets right down to the very heart of our suffering. 
Doctors are usually able to identify the medical cause for these, these physical problems or other kind of problems. But behind those immediate causes is the sovereign God working His goodwill. God says, I make deafness. I make blindness. God is actively, intentionally, gently, lovingly, sovereignly behind illness and disease and suffering. He's even sovereignly behind human death. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says this, See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Jerry Bridges, writing on this very difficult topic, says this, God's sovereignty over people does not mean that we do not experience pain and suffering. It means that God is in control of our pain and suffering and that He has in mind a beneficial purpose for it. There is no such thing as pain without a purpose for the child of God. God is sovereign over suffering, hardship, illness, and death. Finally, let's look at sovereignty and calamity. Good and evil. I hope when great things, beneficial things, wonderful things happen in life, I hope we are quick to point to God as the one who blessed us and uh, gave us that fortuitous event. I hope we are. We want to grow in that. We want to be better at that. But how about when evil events come to pass? What about calamities? Two verses, Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. For I am the Lord who does all these things. God does that. He is sovereignly behind that. Lamentations three thirty-seven to 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass and thus the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? According to the Bible, God is sovereign, sovereignly behind both good and bad events. That's deep water. So what does sovereignty say about God? What does sovereignty say about God? First of all, how can He be just? How can He be just if those things are true? If He says, I bring good and bad, I kill, I cause deafness, cancer, how can God be just? Everywhere in Scripture teaches the justice of God. Deuteronomy 32.4 is an example. Speaking of God, Moses says, The rock... His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Deuteronomy 32.4 The justice and the righteousness of God is on every page of Scripture. And I believe it, because the Bible says it's true. But how can it be? How can that be if all these things are true? Back in Exodus 33, 18-19 Moses said, please show me your glory. So this is toward the end of the journey. You remember the I am statement of the God naming himself earlier on in the book. Now we're towards the end of the book. The journey uh, of, of Exodus is almost over. And, and, and Moses says to him, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Okay, I'm going to answer you. You ready? Here's his answer. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There is no higher standard outside of God Himself. That is, there is no standard outside of God's person to which He must measure. You see what I mean? As if justice existed independently, and we want to see that God measures up to that justice. There is no standard higher than God or outside of Him to which He must measure. He is the absolute highest standard and authority. He is the great I am. And this is the key to His glory. 
This isn't just a hard question about God. This is central and it is a key to the glory of God. He shows mercy and grace when it suits the standard of his own person, of his own character and nature. Put another way, if God were to submit to a standard outside of himself, he would no longer be the highest standard and authority in existence. That would be absurd for some standard to be higher than God to which he must be measured up. He is the standard. Therefore, God must follow the standard that is actually the highest. To follow any lesser lesser standard, listen to this, to follow any lesser standard than the highest standard would be the definition of unjust. Since God does follow the highest standard, there can be, namely his own person, he is just. Since he follows the highest standard that there can be, he is just. It is precisely by following the standard that is his own character and nature that he avoids being unjust. He is the definition of justice. Would we rather God held himself to our standards? No. Romans 9, 17 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul speaking. By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on, the, on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Paul concludes, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Because he is the standard. And he looks to himself to determine. God is just and righteous in his sovereign control over the laws of nature, human hearts, sickness, calamities. The next question then for Paul in Romans 9 and for us is, how can we still be held accountable? If that is true, how can we still be held accountable? God is sovereign over the will of man, yet he is in control of it in such a way that we are still accountable for our actions and choices. We make the choices we do because they are the best choice in our minds. They are the greatest good as we see it, and that's why we choose to do what we do. In short, we do what we really want. Joseph's brothers were doing what they wanted when they sold Joseph into slavery. Pharaoh was doing what he wanted, When he hardened his heart and would not let God's people go. He was doing what he wanted. And God was behind it. And so Paul says in Romans 9, continuing, verses 19 through 23, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If he's hardening Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh does these things. If he was working behind the the evil brothers of Joseph to sell them into slavery and God meant it, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then he goes on here, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does he have the right to do that? He's the potter. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for for destruction? He's endured. He's been patient with them. Why? In order, verse 23, in order, his purpose is in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's a tough passage. I see two answers here. First of all, we wouldn't even have existence to ask such questions if it weren't for God, our creator. So the very fact that we're able to ask that question refers us back to God. He has the absolute right to sovereign control over his creation. And we do not have the right to put him on the witness stand as if he were on trial and he were answering to us. That's his first answer. But he's not done. And I don't think that's his greatest answer. That's not Paul's final answer. The second answer in Romans 9, I believe, is Paul's real answer, verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He has done all of this so that we can see what he's really like. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Israel would understand what God is really like. So the rest of the world would understand what God is really like. That he's merciful and he's, he's just. And he is faithful to his children. He's faithful to his promises. Back in, back in Exodus 33 when he was describing who he was and, and Moses asked, I want to see your glory, remember? And God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Sometimes we get tripped up in there because we think, you know, but don't we deserve, aren't, you know, what if I kind of deserve, what if I don't deserve? And, and we think we, we're going to put our standard on God. But look at how God describes himself there. He doesn't say, I whip who I want to whip. He describes himself primarily as merciful. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And secondly, you sort of expect him to say, I will harden whom I will harden, which he says in other places. But he doesn't there. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That is the essence of God's glory. And it is good for God's creation, us. It is good for us to know what God is really like. And we would never see or understand compassion. We would never see or understand grace or mercy or forgiveness if it weren't for God being sovereign over the heart of Pharaoh and over the heart of Joseph's brothers. We know who God is because he is sovereign to show us who he is. Why sovereignty matters to us. First of all, the fact that God is in absolute control of all things does not mean that we can sit back and do nothing and just let God do what he's going to do. Because the fact is, he most often uses means to accomplish his ends. Very often, the means he uses are you and I. He very often accomplishes what he wants precisely by sending you or me to do that thing. That's how he accomplishes it. So we don't sit back. In the same way, we cannot be reckless in life uh, or with our life or, or, uh, and not take precautions with danger or evil people. We can't be reckless with that because in his sovereign plan, he keeps us safe in those situations by our very caution. We have responsibility. We are not pawns. We do have a will. And we choose what we want. And so we have responsibility. So first of all, that doesn't mean we can sit back and let God do his thing. Second of all, what does God's sovereignty mean to us? The doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God is an unparalleled comfort to us when we also consider that he is a loving God. If he were sovereign but not loving, he would be a despot. And we would have no reason for hope. We would be pawns. On the other hand, if he loved us but were not in control of everything, we would have no assurance that he would be able to work for our good. Jerry Bridges used the example of, if I love my son and he's drowning but I can't swim, what good, what good does my love do? None. But he concludes, God, God is able to swim. The Bible clearly teaches that he is both a loving God and sovereignly in control of all things. And that is ultimately comforting. He is sovereign and he's loving. Thirdly, his sovereignty gives us courage to face life even in the face of millions of details or forces of evil that would leave us cowering otherwise. If you just look at the danger in front of you, if you just look at the world that is out to get your family, that is out to kill your soul, daily forces you would be cowering you would be in fear but god is in control of those details and even those forces of evil god's sovereignty is the reason that we are able to obey jesus commandment in matthew 10:31 to fear not because he is in control that was jesus point and so we don't have to be afraid because god really is in control sovereignly in control fourthly it is only the doctrine of God's sovereignty that makes us able to do what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5.18, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. 
in everything give thanks because sovereign and good God is in control of that everything which may be miserable. And you can give God thanks in everything because that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now this is this is the deepest water I know in Scripture. And so I, we should approach this with great humility because it, it approaches the name of God. It talks about who God is. And I want to be very... Uh, I, I, I had bad dreams about this last night. And, and one of my bad dreams was of um, driving by people who were in an accident on the road. And I was driving by them, ignoring them. And I don't want to do that in this sermon. There are people suffering like I do not comprehend in this room. This doctrine is not meant to gloss over your suffering. This doctrine and this doctrine alone helps you in your suffering, gives reason to your suffering. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of you. I can't fathom. I have tried and tried, and I cannot fathom how you can be sovereignly, actively in control of all things. And yet the Bible tells me again and again that you are. And I find comfort in that. I find great comfort. And I can be thankful in good situations and bad because you don't pick up the pieces afterwards as if it were a mistake You designed it from the beginning, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so I'm encouraged. I take comfort, and I can give thanks, and I find hope in this doctrine. I find hope in this truth, and I gladly submit to you, God of all things, God of my heart. I submit to you, and I rejoice that I get to know you, and I rejoice that you have made yourself known to us, and I rejoice that you don't uh, meet some standard outside of you as if it were higher than you or, or as if uh, you should meet our standard. You are true to yourself, and you are sovereign, holy, almighty, infinite, glorious God, and I give you great praise for that, and I worship you. Lord, help us in our time of difficulty, our time of suffering. Help us as we wrestle with this, and we may wrestle with this in the face of a spouse who is deathly ill or having lost a child or having sick kids or a disease ourselves we don't understand. I pray that you would Take the very nature of who you are and what your glory means and that you would work in our hearts. Give yourself glory from it and along the way, comfort your children. Encourage us, hold us up. Father, we look to you and we trust you. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Praise the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.